Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of what this series is all about. Hopefully this is review to many of you who've been here the other weeks. But we're looking at the canticles. What is a canticle? A canticle is a song or poem that appears in Scripture somewhere other than the book of Psalms. And we talked about some of the Old Testament examples, the Song of Moses, the Song of David, so on and so forth. But there are four of them here in the first two chapters of Luke. And the first week we looked at Mary's song or poem or announcement, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. Then we looked at Zacharias last week, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. And then today we get to Luke 2.14. And who is speaking when we get there? Angels. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I just read our scripture. But I'll read both verses. Would you stand with me, please? This is Luke, chapter 2, verses 13, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Let's pray, please. Our Father, this is familiar ground. And yet, I pray that you would not allow it to be old news. That we would not be flippant toward your word. But we know that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that it can pierce our hearts. And I pray that it would continue to do that this morning you would give us understanding of who you are and what you have done in sending your son as a baby to grow up and become a man to save the world to save us from sin may that come through loud and clear in our study of your word this morning i ask for the help of your holy spirit that i would be clear that i would be accurate that we would be ready to hear from you knowing that this is a message from you this morning. May we treat it as such. And may we be ready to act on what you show us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I did not read all 20 verses. But if you're like me, this is some of the most familiar information in all of Luke's gospel. Maybe, apart from Psalm 23... Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. This, this is one of the most familiar passages in the Bible. I grew up and I heard, it was usually my dad, I think I can remember my great-grandmother at one point, reading the Christmas story, Luke 2.1-20. through 20. That's, that's usually about where we start and end, I think, usually. Warren Wiersbe said that this story is old, but it's ever new, because God's people never tire of it. So I pray that's the case in our hearts this morning. These 20 verses, I would outline this way, verses 1 through 7, the birth of Jesus. We read about Mary and Joseph and getting to Bethlehem and Jesus is born. That's verses 1 through 7. And then the news from the angel, verses 8 to 14, those shepherds that were shocked by angels who came to visit them out in the fields. Verses 8 through 14 describe that. And then the response of the shepherds, how did they react to seeing angels? What did they do after that? That's verses 15 through 20. And 
with that as the outline, the flow of the passage, I have really just two ideas for you. Try to make this as simple as possible. So I have it in six words. Point number one, come and see. Point number two, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Come and see is verses 15 and 16, go and tell. Verses 17, 18, and 20. Go back with me, please, to chapter 2, verse 1. And we'll work our way through this a paragraph or so at a time. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. That first week I alluded to, but didn't really talk about the first four verses, the introduction to Luke. It says that he's putting together an ordered account, an orderly account. He has interviewed eyewitnesses. He is putting together a historical record, and he's laying it out in order. And we get to this point, and he wants us to know, certainly the readers, when Luke wrote this, say 60, 70 years A.D., that's the time frame he would have been writing this down. He interviewed people, like Mary probably, and he wrote down historical information, and he gave them enough to know exactly when this was. We can't pinpoint it quite so precisely as they did, but that's what he's doing. He's letting us know these are real events. This isn't made up. This is real. This happened in a specific time in a specific place. That is the idea of this first paragraph. So in those days, he's telling us, that's when it happened. Specifically when? Well, Caesar Augustus reigned from 27 BC to AD 14. So that narrows it somewhat. And it says that there was a census, a numbering, a registration. And the, the wording of verse 2 is a little confusing perhaps, but there was someone governing Syria. And the wording is one of two things. Either before he was governing Syria, that's when this census took place, and it was the first of a 14-year cycle, like we have a 10-year cycle here in the United States now. A little bit like that. This was the first one. And it's either saying it was before Quirinius was governing Syria, or he may be the guy that we found an artifact that says that there was a governor who ruled twice. Because Quirinius, the time we know that he was governing Syria was actually after Herod had died. So piecing that together between 27 and 14, and what's the point? The point is these are actual events that happened in history and Luke is telling us about them so that we will know that they happened. And they happened in God's perfect timing and according to his perfect plan. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, in the, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Joseph, who's he? Well, we found out last week he is the guy who is betrothed to Mary. Who's Mary? the one the angel came to and said, you are going to have a baby and he will be Jesus. He is the son of God. Joseph has to go from where he lives in Nazareth, south, as much as 100 miles, it's hard to say what route they would have taken, but on foot, possibly on donkey, but probably on foot, up to 100 miles. Women who have had babies, how would you like to take an 80 to 100 mile journey on foot, perhaps nine months pregnant, eight, nine months pregnant in your last trimester. Okay, I'm, I'm, none of the ladies in the room are, are good with that. They don't want to do that. 
But they didn't get to choose because what's going on? God is orchestrating events and he moves Caesar himself to say, we're going to have a worldwide census, the entire Roman world of that time. And it could have been a Roman law, probably what I read this week, it, it was a, a law for the people of Israel that you had to go to your birthplace, you had to go to your hometown. So God is creating events that are going to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at just the right time. They, they weren't taking a pleasure trip, they weren't doing it for fun, they were required to go because of the census. Where is Bethlehem? Bethlehem is a little south, outside of Jerusalem, in the hill country of Judea, and the name means, you may remember, house of bread. The one whom John called the bread of life is coming to be born in the house of bread. It was the hometown of Ruth and Boaz, if you remember that study. And of course, King David. It's the city of David. We see that reference later. So why did they have to go to Bethlehem? To obey the edict that Caesar had signed into law. Why did they have to go? Because they were descendants of David. Why did they have to go to Bethlehem? To fulfill prophecy. Micah 5.2, and keep in mind, that's what we call the Old Testament. That would have been the scriptures at that time. Joseph and Mary may have known these verses, maybe. We don't know. But Micah 5.2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Someone is coming to be king, and will be born in Bethlehem, and that one who will be king has always been. That's what Micah 5.2 tells us. Did it make sense to Micah? I don't know. Did it make sense to the people of that time? I don't know. Did Mary and Joseph realize this? I don't know. But they came to understand that. They came to a point of understanding, and we certainly have the scriptures and can compare it all and figure it out now. Verse 6 says, So it was that while they were there, so some of us may have a picture in our mind. Maybe you've seen a, a movie or a TV special or something and, and they just barely get there as she's in labor. And, and that may not have been the case because it says while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It says she brought forth her firstborn son. You read those two verses, there's not really a lot of detail there, is there? And yet Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us anything at all. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what we get. Two verses that tell us that Jesus was born. She brought forth her firstborn son. We know from other gospels that he's the firstborn because he had at least four brothers and at least two sisters that we know of. When did this happen? Again, we don't know exactly when this happened. And I'll spare you the other details, but as you piece it together, when Herod the Great was reigning, and of course, after the fact, when the wise men came to him, according to Matthew, we read that he had all the babies in Bethlehem, two years and younger, killed. So there's a two-year window there. He died four years, it was 4 BC. That's when Herod the Great died. So our window here is that Jesus was born between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C., probably on the 6 B.C. end of things. But we don't know which year exactly. What about the time of year? Well, of course, he was born December 25th. We don't really know that either. That's when we observe it, but we don't know. The Bible never tells us that. That tradition started, I believe, in the 4th century. Yeah, December 25th, nobody 
said this was his, his birthday until the fourth century. So it may, may or may not have been. That's not Luke's point. And it's not my point this morning either. I'm not trying to debunk 20, the 25th of December. I'm saying Jesus came. These are real historical events. Um, I, was, I was trying to think of a parallel, and I don't know if this works or not, but I'm going to try it. How many of you in the room believe that the president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated? How many of you believe that to be true? Okay. How many of you, I won't ask you to tell me, but how many of you know the exact date of that off the top of your head? You do know it. November. That, I believe so. I looked it up because I didn't know off the top of my head. So this is a historic event that you all acknowledge to be true, and yet you don't necessarily know exactly when or what year. Right? This is a historical event, and that's Luke's point. They didn't have a dating system of that kind. You think about it. If all time is measured by when Jesus came, then they're having to go back because now they know this, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah. He came, he died, he rose again. We know all that. We read later, he says, Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. Again, it doesn't seem like Luke knew the exact birth date or the year he was born, but he was around 30, 32, something like that when he was conducting his public ministry on earth. So these are real events. Can we pinpoint them to the precise date? No. Is that okay? Yes because these are real events that took place. Swaddling cloths, that was normal. May seem strange to us, but just the same way you would swaddle a, a newborn baby now, they would take cloths and they would wrap the baby. In some cases, they believed it was good for the internal organs. In some cases, they thought it was good for the limbs because all of a sudden this baby is free. We know, just from experience, that a baby being swaddled, being wrapped tightly, is a little more secure because all of a sudden, if they can flail, sometimes it wakes them up. So just practically, it makes sense. Wrapped in swaddling cloths, that was normal. But what else does it say that she did? It says that she laid him in a manger. That was not normal. And we all probably have our, our idea, I think I showed you this image last year, we have our idea of what a manger looks like. Of course, it looks just like that. That's what my, my manger scene, my nativity set looks like at home. Probably not. Probably not. Archaeological digs, everything they find is stone. So it looked more like this. A little bathtub would probably be ab about right. Some people have even pointed out the similarities to a, a grave, a tomb, which would also be true. But it was used as a feeding trough. That's where they put him. Now, why would they put a baby in a feeding trough? Well, Luke tells us that too. If you go back to it, it says, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room for them in the inn. Again, we don't have specifics. It would be kind of cool if we did. But because it says the inn, that means it was a specific publicly known lodging place that they would have known which inn it was. not Oh, it was that inn in Bethlehem. It was the inn in Bethlehem. It wasn't a huge town. Maybe there was just one. I don't know. But it would have been a place for a caravan or for individuals. And if you want to get a picture in your mind what it may have been like, if you imagine a U-shape or perhaps even a, a, a square with a courtyard. And the downstairs area would have been a courtyard, probably a fountain in the middle, some sort of water supply for the animals. And the animals would have been there in the courtyard. And those who had money and a place, they would be probably in an upper level staying in their room 
And if you couldn't afford any better, then you might be staying on the same level, and the animals just might wander in and out. It, it would have been interesting. It would have been smelly, probably. It probably wasn't the cleanest place. But that would have been the inn. And it says there was no room for them in the inn. Why wouldn't there have been room? Well, if everybody was having to come to Bethlehem at that time, that would explain why there wasn't room. One thing I've, in listening to sermons and, and thinking this through over the last couple of weeks, I've never thought a lot about, Mary and Joseph were both from Bethlehem originally. That's where their, their lineage is. And that means their parents, and if they had living grandparents, all would have had to go to Bethlehem to be registered as well. You tracking with me? They weren't staying with them, were they? They didn't have an uncle or a cousin or somebody that they could go stay with. Even those relatives that may have traveled to the same place for the same reason at the same time. There doesn't, there's no mention of anybody else. They could have been completely on their own, just the two of them. Why, why do you think that could have happened? Rejection? Suspicion? If somebody in your family said, yes, I'm pregnant, but there's no father because the Holy Spirit is the one who is the, the one who made me pregnant. That just seems absurd to us, and it probably would have been to them as well. It does tell us, and we, we passed a minute ago, the reference to his betrothed wife. You don't read that very often, do you? Because betrothal, we talked about, is a specific period, up to a year, legally binding, like a marriage, but before the, the wedding ceremony takes place. But we know from Matthew that Joseph, after having Gabriel come to him, he had a dream. The angel told him, don't be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, because what has happened in her is conceived of the Holy Ghost. And it says that he did. So he treated her as his wife, but we also know, comparing Matthew and Luke, this is before they have come together. They haven't had normal married relations at this point until after Jesus was born. So it's, Still a betrothal. They're together. Joseph has had the angelic visit. He believes her. She had Gabriel come tell her about it. She believes this is from God. I don't know if anybody else believed it, certainly at that point. So they're kind of on their own. They're in Bethlehem. There's no place for them to stay. The city may have been crowded. Whatever relatives were there may not have had anything to do with them. And it comes time for her to have the baby. She goes into labor. She has the baby, lays him in a manger, wrapped in his swaddling cloths. Now, how did your parents announce your birth? Think for a minute. Depending on your age and generation, maybe it was with a birth announcement, a little card. I, my mom kept, my mom keeps things, and she kept that. She has shown it to me. They sent out little birth announcements. Maybe later it was email, maybe it was text. I can remember having a flip phone for one of our kids and we could take a picture finally and try to text people and that was a big deal. So big advancements. That's perhaps how we would announce a birth today. God gets to make his own rules on how to make birth announcements and he did it right. That's what we get to read about in this next section. This is God's announcement of the birth of jesus verse 8 now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night shepherds of course they're out in the fields they're keeping up with their flock they're caring for their flock some people believe that these shepherds in bethlehem very well may have been keeping the temple flocks those that would be sacrificed they needed i believe two 
blemish-free, spotless lambs for sacrifice every day. So they had to breed those flocks. These may have been those shepherds. Don't know for sure. But God chose the least of the cities, Bethlehem. Micah called it a little city, insignificant city. God chose the insignificant city, town of Bethlehem. He chose probably the least significant people there. Shepherds were poor. They were considered low-class, unclean. They were always ceremonially unclean because they were having to take care of the animals all the time. So they couldn't be a part of temple worship most of the time, if at all. They were widely considered dishonest, like thieves, pickpockets. And they weren't allowed to testify in court. We'll come back to that. So shepherds, low in society, that's who God chose to announce the birth of his son to. Verse 9, we know the story, but just put yourself with them. They're going about their business. They're taking care of the sheep. Maybe they're asleep. Maybe the sheep are asleep. Maybe the fire's getting low. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. They were greatly afraid. They reacted the way you and I would react. If an angel showed up, out in the field is where they were, or in your bedroom at night, you would panic. You would be scared. I would be scared. We really don't have any other um, any account I can think of in Scripture where an angel showed up and the people were just like, hey, how are you? What's your name? People were scared. There is something about seeing an angel when you know it's an angel that would be petrifying. And they were greatly afraid. It says there, the glory of the Lord shone around them. What are we talking about? A bright light. Think of the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of the Lord. That brightness that sometimes appeared in a cloud, sometimes in fire. Sometimes that smoky idea when, when the temple was dedicated, that, that kind of thing. So the presence of the Lord is what it's saying. For the first time in centuries, the presence of the Lord is there. The glory of the Lord is there. Where is it? It's out in a field in Bethlehem. That's crazy. Didn't come to the temple. Out in Bethlehem. And they are scared to death. Verse 10. Then the angel said to them, what angels almost always say, do not be afraid. Stop fearing. Do not be afraid. Why? For, behold, listen up. Pay attention. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. My New King James says good tidings. If you have a newer translation, it may say good news. It is from the Greek words that give us evangelion, the gospel. That's where this comes from. He says, I have good news. He has the best news possible. And it's going to bring great joy because they were Literally, they had a great fear. They feared a great fear. Now he's saying, don't be afraid. I have great joy. I have news of great joy. And here it is. It is for all the people. Now, raise your hand, please, if you are included in all people. All of you who are awake should have your hands up. If you're here and you're alive, you are part of all people. So this is good news for anybody and everybody who has ever lived. Here are some verses that might be familiar to you that go with that john three sixteen, god loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. How about 2 Peter 3, 9? The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that all would be saved, would be rescued. So this is good news, the gospel, great joy, and it's for everybody. It's for everybody. But he doesn't limit it to, oh, it's for everybody, that's nice. No, it's to you. Specifically, he was talking to the shepherds at the moment, right? Because he says, verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We've done this before. You can handle it, I know. I want you to put your name in that blank. I want you to say, for me it would be, there is born to Bob a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Will you do that, please? There is born to Bob a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You're not supposed to say Bob, you're supposed to say your name. Let's try it one more time. There is born to a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I knew you can handle that. Why? Because individually, he came for each one of us. He offers salvation, yes, to everyone. And he offers salvation to you and to me. The good news is, he came for everyone. And specifically, the good news is, he came for me. I need to be rescued, and you need to be rescued. So there's born to you this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, where David was born, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now we have three titles there. The angel's announcement has three titles for Jesus. None of them is Jesus, by the way. That's a name. But three titles. Let's look at them for a second. Savior. At that time, the Jewish people were looking for someone to throw off the shackles of Rome. They were looking for a military leader. They thought that's who Messiah would be. So if they heard Savior, they would have thought, yes, freedom. And he was coming to bring freedom, but not the kind they thought at that time. Because at his first coming, he was coming to deliver from sin. So as a Savior, he was going to deliver them and us from sin. What's the good news? That God was sending his son, Jesus, to deliver from sin. Remember, that's what the name Jesus means, that Yahweh, Jehovah, saves. He is a Savior by the very meaning of his name. And he is there to meet people's greatest need. What is the greatest need? We have some young people in the, in the room. Your greatest need right now may feel like it's that video game or video gaming system or whatever it is that you were asking for for Christmas. That Oh, that's what I want. Or some of the adults in the room may be thinking, oh, that car, that different job, that different relationship. That is not our greatest need. Our greatest need as people on this planet is rescue from sin. Because when I break God's law, and I do, and so do you, there's nothing I can do about it except come to him to do something about it. And he has. He's sent Jesus. So Jesus is the Savior. He is Christ. That is the Greek equivalent of Messiah. That's the anointed one, the promised one. That's the one who was promised all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that he would send someone to crush the serpent's head. And he is the Lord. And that can mean just master. You probably are aware of that if you've studied the New Testament at all. But it can also be substituted for and mean God. So there is born to you this day a Savior 
who is the Messiah, who is also God. He's all three. That is good news. Review. You don't have to take out a half sheet of paper, but this is a pop quiz for those of you who've been here the other two weeks. Gabriel came to Zacharias. And Zacharias said, how is this going to happen? How do I know this is going to happen? And Gabriel, the angel, gave a sign. Do you know what it was? (laughs) He couldn't talk for nine months or so. He was mute. That was his sign. Angel Gabriel, second week, came to Mary. That may have been the first week. But anyway, in chapter one, came to Mary, and she said, how are these things going to happen? How is this going to play out? And he gave her a sign. Do you remember what her sign was? Your cousin, y'all aren't doing very well, come on. Your cousin, Elizabeth, who's old, is, she's already six months pregnant. That's the sign that John the Baptist was going to be born. So this is, this is easy. This is easy. When the, the angel, and by the way, he's not called Gabriel here, but maybe it was. When the angel tells them this, what do you think he's going to do to give them a little bit of proof, to give them reassurance that this is really going to happen? He's going to give them a sign. Okay, He's going to give them a sign. I didn't even ask you what the sign is. Now I'll ask you what the sign is. What is the sign? You'll find a baby. Do you think there were other babies in Bethlehem at that time? Sure. So how are they going to know which baby? Well, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. Is that going to narrow it down? Probably not. But what is different about this baby? I told you earlier. Come on. He's, he's in a feeding trough. He's in a manger. That's how you're going to know. So the angel who has just told them something that is unbelievable also gives them a sign, a reassurance. This is how you're going to know it's true. Because he's going to be in a manger. So there we go. That's where we are. The angel finishes his little speech. But he says, he's going to be lying in a manger. And that's how you're going to know it's him. What we're about to enter is what I read at the beginning, verses 13 and 14. And I already have, I'm sure, and probably will continue referring to it as a song. We don't know whether they sang it or said it. The verb here is said. But something poetic, something angelic, an angelic host is about to say something, and it's going to be really loud. Because it says in verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. It would have been loud. When you read Revelation, it's like the sound of many waters when Jesus speaks or when an angel speaks. It's going to be loud. And this is a multitude of angels. Where is the multitude of angels normally? Where are they usually? They get sent back and forth to earth on missions for God, but they are around the throne room. And we read, when we did our series in Revelation, in chapter 5, we read what they're doing on a regular basis. It says it's a host, so it's an encampment. It's a bunch of them. So this gives us a hint of how many there are and what they're doing. This is Revelation 5.11. Then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. So how many are there? I don't know. It's a lot. It's more than John could count right then. It's more than I could count right now. It may be more than we can count, period. 
And here's what they're saying with a loud voice in verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I think it is safe for us to assume, based on that passage, and then when we get back over here, that angels get excited about the Lamb of God. Because who has been born? The Lamb of God. Why did God choose to tell the shepherds first? I don't know. I don't know the mind of God. But when he's sending the one who is, according to John, the good shepherd, when he's sending the one who, according to John, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then shouldn't it be shepherds? Those who were perhaps raising spotless lambs every day to go be sacrificed in Jerusalem, they would know what a spotless lamb should look like. He said, this is it. This is the heavenly host praising God, and they say glory to God in the highest. What does that mean? Heaven. God's glory was here in the person of Jesus. Now it also says goodwill toward men, and that's probably not a good translation. Some of you have something different there. First part, glory to God in the highest. Second part, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So let's talk about peace for a minute. How can we experience peace? Are we experiencing peace? What kind of peace is this? Let me start with a verse from the Old Testament. Isaiah 48, 22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. For those who are still separated from God by their sin, there is no peace. But there's some good news. Let's switch to the New Testament for a minute. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever this peace thing is, we get it because we are justified. And that's a fancy word. We are declared righteous. God looks at us and says, he's good. She's holy. She's righteous. How can he do that? Because of the covering, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ shed for us, giving us forgiveness of sins. It's not that we are righteous at that point, but we are declared, we are treated as if we are righteous. That's what justification is. And it says there that we are justified how? By faith, by believing on the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by believing in him, by putting my faith in him, by staking my claim that if I have any hope of eternal life, it's on Jesus. I have peace with God. Now coming back to what is peace. Ephesians, we looked at this a week or two ago. Ephesians tells us we were far off. We were enemies of God. I don't want to be God's enemy. Do you want to be God's enemy? Then how do we make peace with God? through believing on Jesus Christ our Lord. So when it says goodwill toward men, you may have a different translation there too. On earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. That's the NIV. The CSB has it this way. Peace on earth to people he favors. Now we're getting closer. We're getting a little bit of understanding. God's peace is not given to those who have goodwill toward him. None of us naturally does. It's not that, oh, I'm, I'm doing good for God, I, I'm praising him, I, I'm giving to church, I, I'm telling people. No, it's not the good works. That doesn't make us right with God. It said a minute ago, by faith. 
It's not by works. But rather, it says here, those who are recipients of his goodwill, or we could say favor, or we could say a word much more familiar to us, grace. It's by his grace. So here's my paraphrase. This is not inspired, but in studying this verse, here's what I came up with. In heaven, glory to God. On earth, peace to people who receive his grace. Who will have peace? Who will have a relationship with God? Instead of being his enemy, I am his friend. I am his adopted son or daughter. Those who receive his grace. Do you want peace this Christmas? It's in Jesus. Do you want grace, blessing? It's in Jesus and only in him. Now some of you may be thinking, this is nice, Bob, but you're scaring me because we've been at this a long time and you haven't given us the first point yet. So this is it. It's just going to go quickly here. At the end, we have two points. I told you they were simple. The first is come and see. I'm at verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. If you're wondering, I thought they were in Bethlehem. They were in the fields outside Bethlehem. So let's go into town and see what has happened. The Lord has made known. The Lord has made known. Yes, the angel came and the angel host said, but who made it known to them? The Lord. Yahweh is the one who has shown this to us. Verse 16 says, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe. Where was the babe? Lying in a manger. How'd they know that was the one? In my own mind, I, I envision them, it's, it may be the middle of the night, and they're, they're knocking on doors. Hey, is there a new baby here? Hey, is there a new baby here? Where's the baby lying? Who are you, and why are you beating on my door in the middle of the night? It must have been strange. But they finally found the right place, the, the alley, the, the inn, wherever they found them. Tradition tells us it was a cave. They found them by looking diligently, and they found the baby who was lying in a manger. They were excited. They came with haste. And the second point, go and tell. Verse 17 says, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. said this earlier, but for some reason we don't fully understand. Shepherds weren't allowed to testify in court. I find that interesting. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, he tells us about the shepherds. They were the first ones to hear of the announcement of the birth of Jesus. At the end of his gospel, we get there, and who are the first people to see the risen Christ? The first people were women. Another group of outcasts, I'm, I'm using that term loosely, of that time who couldn't testify in court. So here are the shepherds, and they get to tell, and they start telling everybody. They're the ones spreading the word. And the people around them are amazed. They marvel. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And as a kid, hearing that growing up, why does it all of a sudden shift to Mary? Why does he even mention her? I don't know. Again, I, I can't prove this. But if Luke is getting eyewitness accounts, I believe this may be thrown in there to tell us, and Mary's the one who told me all about this, because who else would have known? The Holy Spirit can reveal it to anybody. I realize that. But if he is interviewing people, Mary kept all these things. She was thinking about them. She was considering what they might mean. Verse 20, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Whatever the shepherds were or weren't, 
they were a quick study. They learned quickly. Because what did the angels do? They glorified and praised God. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So what do they do? They come, they check it out, they come and see, there he is. That's the one that an entire group of angels was just chanting about out in the fields. And here he is. And we're going to tell everybody. So how do they do it? They go about glorifying and praising God. They're telling everybody. And they're doing it excitedly. Maybe they were waking up the neighborhood. I don't know. They just saw a baby that would change the world. They believed what the angel told them. How do I know? Because they went. They could have thought it was a mass hallucination and just dismissed it, but they believed the angel. And faith acts. And faith went into town in its actions and checked it out. And they searched diligently until they found Jesus and they believed and then they told. So anyone with us online this morning, anyone here in the room, do you believe? Have you come and seen? Because salvation is a free gift from God. But individually, we must believe it. We must accept it. You can believe on Jesus and have peace with God. Believers, are you going to go and tell? Are you telling others of this good news of the Messiah's birth? The angels glorified God and told the shepherds. The shepherds praised and glorified God and told everybody who would listen. So who are we going to tell? Who's on your heart this morning? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Is there anybody here, child or adult, who would say, I, I have never received this gift of salvation you're talking about, but I'd like to do so this morning. If that describes you, would you simply let me know by lifting your hand and putting it back down? Believers, is there somebody on your heart this morning? friend, relative, co-worker, neighbor, classmate? Is there somebody you want to go and tell this week and, and you'd like to ask prayer for some courage to do that? If that describes you, same thing. Just lift your hand and put it back down. Father, would you work your will with your word? Because that's what's going to change. That's what's going to make a difference in us to give us the hope of eternal life, to give us the assurance of salvation, to give us the words to say to someone else. Please work your will in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.